What if you were growing up in your snug little elm tree home in the woods with a loving father, a loving mother, and two little cute rabbit siblings? Also, you were a rabbit? What if then your home was invaded by wolves and you ended up on the run? Then you joined the rabbit resistance sworn to honor and protect others till the green ember rises or the end of the world. We will explore this Talking Animals universe with popular author S.D. Smith, creator of the Green Ember fantasy franchise about tiny creatures who find big adventures. Welcome again to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from Lorehaven, where we explore fantastical stories for God's glory and apply the meanings of these stories to the real world that our author, Jesus Christ, has called us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven.com, also the co-author of a nonfiction book about fiction called The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, and a rabbit resistance sounds like just the thing for wolves, or in Texas, we are having a problem with coyotes right now and possibly chupacabras. And this is episode 97, What If Rabbits With Swords Fought For Hope In A Mended Wood? We'll be looking at the novel The Green Ember with its author S.D. Smith today. I just finished listening to The Green Ember, which is the first novel of many authored by S.D. Smith, and obviously I enjoyed it so much that even since our interview with him, I decided to show up in the recording studio today with my best evil wolf voice. Uh, this, uh, this strain, this unnatural strain you're detecting in my pitch here has nothing to do with the fact that I finally came down with it, uh, but I just decided that I would dry out my voice today to uh, better impersonate the sound of an evil a canine creature attacking little rabbits and sending them scurrying into the woods in hope of joining the resistance that's perfect because we were just talking in the guild about the wolves in narnia and how they sort of changed that from the book to the movie uh the wolf was fenris and then Mogram in the movie. Oh, no, it actually has been Mogram. It became in one edition of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Fenris Ulf, uh, based on oh. Fenrir, the uh, the Norse wolf. Uh, last That's scene, right. I think, getting defeated by Hulk in Thor Ragnarok. That was the giant wolf. Uh, and then I think ultimately got changed back to Mogram, and that was the name used in uh, both the BBC yeah. drama in 1990 and the 2005 Walden film. Yeah, Mogram sounds like a wolf's name. Now, what are the wolves in uh, the Green Ember name? Do they There's, have names? I'm, the names uh, escape me right now, but one has a red eye and uh, is genuinely chilling, uh, especially yeah. in the audiobook presentation. Uh, the narrator of the audiobook does a fantastic job bringing these voices to life and, and taking it all as earnestly and seriously as it needs to be. Um, I loved the audiobook version. I'm looking forward to reading the books as well as listening to them. Uh, Zach, some of the, what we talked about in the interview was just how much I felt connected to that older method of storytelling, uh, kind of that more classic feel, you know, talking animals in the woods, little creatures with big ideas. Like some people might uh, get a little nervous about that, why you may even feel a little squirrely. I'm like, oh, that sounds like kid stories. Well, as I say to, uh, to Sam in our discussion, I'm now 38 years old. I don't have small children in the house. Uh, it's been decades since I played with stuffed animals, making up stories for them. Uh, and then even apart from the Chronicles of Narnia uh, kind of feel uh, that the Green Ember universe has, I really enjoyed this story. And so uh, I'm especially looking forward to this discussion we'll have in just a moment. Yeah, I was a big fan as a kid of uh, American Tale and also The Rescuers. Those are both about mice. You know, it's fun to go on an adventure through the eyes of a little talking animal. 
And as a kid, it, it kind of helps you face that danger of the world in a different way, I guess, uh, because it, you're not so worried about like a, another kid, you know, getting eaten by the wolf or something. It's, uh, it's just a mouse. Okay. It can still make a big impact. The, the rescuers had a scene with the whirlpool that always scared me as a kid and I could, I could never watch it. Like, you know, I had to watch it between my fingers. And so uh, I was really proud of my kids when they they watched that and they weren't they weren't too scared by it. I think it sort of helps you make that jump into facing the monsters in the real world when you see uh, these cute animals face uh, these fantastical monsters. Say, Zach, you mentioned the Lorehaven Guild earlier. Uh, before my voice completely gives out, I do want to mention uh, that just this week, as this episode releases, we've started our new book quest in the Lorehaven Guild. Uh, we wrapped up the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, book quest for now, uh, as of the end of January. Now that we're into February, uh, we are plunging into the world of Power On, a superhero YA adventure from author H.L. Burke. We've got that quest running now through the end of February. New questions posted, uh, I think, every day. I think it ended up that that book had 28 chapters, which fits perfectly with February's uh, 28 days this year. In order to enter the guild, you have to get a super secret invite, and you get that just by subscribing free to Lorehaven, getting the updates from the website and lorehaven.com. We will then send you the welcome email, including that super secret guild invite, and you can then enter the Discord server, check out our Sacred Scrolls faith statement shared by all leaders of the guild, definitely heed the wisdom of the code of conduct, which applies to every hero joining the guild, and then come on in, have some virtual tea in the Great Hall, and discover the ongoing book quest for Power On from H.L. Burke. By the way, we asked some of our guild heroes about the Green Ember series and their experience with that. A few of the comments uh, we heard was, uh, I've read, listened to all but the most recent book. They are fantastic. The narration on the audiobooks is absolutely fantastic. The characters are complex and fully realized. Uh, lots of readers like the threads of the gospel, beautifully woven throughout the story, virtues and life lessons, great emotional heft, all that in a series about rabbits, as one person said. So once more, uh, the, I think it's appropriate to raise your expectations quite a bit for this one. I wasn't sure what to expect, Zach. This is not necessarily uh, a series that had a lot of uh, name recognition for me already, but having gone to several of the homeschool conferences, uh, I had heard about these books and I knew that they are very popular among homeschool readers and others. So we're going to get to that interview in just a moment. First, before we jump into the unmended wood, let us discover what's up with those killer robots in T.E. Bradford's novel Awakened, our first sponsor for this episode. Once more, that back cover description is, what if your worst enemy was your only hope? What if saving your life meant destroying your beliefs? How far would you go to survive? MACs manufactured anodic commandos were designed for battle. Most people believe sending robotic soldiers into combat is better than risking human lives. But Kara has seen what happens when unfeeling soulless automatons decide who lives and who dies. Machines don't care whether the enemy is holding a rake instead of a gun or that a six-year-old girl watches from a bedroom window. All they know is what they were programmed for, destruction. When Kara finds herself wounded and defenseless in the middle of a battle zone, she has no choice but to use the only weapon she can find, a disabled MAC. Without him, she won't make it out alive. With him, she might come out a different person. Will hate destroy her? Or will the natural love of a creator for its creation open her eyes to a truth that changes everything? You can find the purchase link, book cover, and full description in the show notes for this episode, 97, 
or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. I'm a big sucker for stories with robots. And uh, Stephen, you mentioned earlier about the the wolf with one red eye, and there's something really creepy about that. And I can think of some uh, some robot movies with with the one red eye, like Terminator, uh, the original one with Arnold Schwarzenegger, or uh, you know Picard when he gets turned into Locutus by the Borg, and he's got that laser on. And I understand our guest today is a fan of Star Trek. Yes, in fact, uh, Burnett to Transporter Room One. Go ahead. Two, to beam into our studio. Then transport yourself. Energize. Well, the captain just said energize, and S.D. Smith has beamed onto the transporter pad. S.D. Smith is the author of the Green Ember series, a best-selling middle-grade adventure saga. The Green Ember has reached hundreds of thousands of readers and spent time as the number one best-selling audiobook in the world on Audible. Smith's stories are captivating readers across the globe who are hungry for new stories with an old soul. Enthusiastic families can't get enough of these tales. When he's not writing adventurous tales of hashtag rabbits with swords in his writing shed dubbed The Forge, Smith loves to speak to audiences about storytelling, imagination, and seeing yourself as a character in the story. S.D. Smith lives in West Virginia with his wife and four kids, Thank you so much for joining the Fantastical Truth Studios. Uh, now rechristened the wardrobe on my end and the spare oom on Zach's end. So we just did a little world building, S.D. Smith and us. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be with you guys. Gosh, that's uh, I'm so glad to be a part of this. This is like my vocation coming coming into play in a useful way for, for once. Live and in person. I have you. Yes, uh, I just finished reading uh, the Green Ember book one. Now that's you know the first of several books that you've made, and I'd love to share what I thought of it in just a moment. But first, uh, let's go to chapter one of this interview. We always like to ask a Christian fantastical author who beams or otherwise transports into the studio, how did you discover biblical truth and fantastical stories subhead? When did you accept Aslan as your personal lion and savior? <laughs> oh man that's that's funny it, <laughs> because it's always narnia that's why we asked that because almost always someone yeah. says well it was c.s lewis and i was bouncing on my father's knee at age five and a half and like and, and it's wonderful yeah it's always narnia and and never winter um yeah. it's <laughs> it's yeah man we i definitely my first encounter probably was with the narnia books which was a really big deal to me mom and mom mom read them to us uh that was a I was always, you know, enchanted by any kind of stories that had um, that were transcendent, or even just space stories, anything like that. I always liked speculative fiction in general, and, and like Star Trek and Star Wars, and and I was captured by that. But we lived in 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 the deep in a holler in West Virginia, and we lived in the basement of a log cabin that my dad was building. And I can remember just being in that cabin or in, in that basement, which was kind of a little bit dank, a little dark. Uh, maybe very dank, maybe very dark. And we were not, uh, we were not millionaires. I'll put it that way. And uh, I can remember just in that sort of dark place, like closing my eyes and listening to mom read those stories and, and seeing it all and just seeing it so clearly. And I, that didn't turn me, I wasn't like a reader after that. I, I was very late to the reading game. I started reading probably when I was a teenager uh, and we were way, way out of the holler by then we we were missionaries in South Africa and and I've been been a few places by the time I turned into a reader, but that just like stuck with me big time. So that was probably the big, uh, and I I didn't know how to sort of process it. 
uh, at the time, but I can remember feeling and just having that experience of seeing uh, all those things in my mind so clearly and having a feeling of wonder and awe. So definitely that was when I accepted Aslan <laughs> personal line. Now tell our listeners and actually honestly tell me what is a hauler because that, that's oh, the second time I've heard what a hauler is. Oh wow! Okay. I guess I don't know what that is. Yeah. Intriguing. You're, you're, very you're, Texan. you're okay. too educated. You're too educated. Do a little you're... world building here for us. <laughs> so a hauler is, is is just a way to say the word hollow, and the hollow is uh, the space between you know two mountains. So you, you live up a holler. You know, it's uh, so just kind of like okay. a valley sort of thing. But um, yeah, that's that's I grew up. My dad said that we. We're, we live so far back in the woods that no one lived behind us. And uh, that was also kind of a, a fantasy thing for me because I was like, whoa, that's cool. Like, is that true? Because, you know, when you're a kid, you don't, you, yeah. you know, you're, you're very dumb. I mean, was uh, it like totally off the grid and everything? Like you had no, you know, it wasn't well water, like, that kind of thing? No, well, we did have well water, yeah. But it, it was, uh, no, actually, we didn't have well water. We did at one point maybe, but I think mm-hmm. we did get water out there. But no, it wasn't too, too far out. But okay. but even even our county, like being, being just regular in in our county was not uh it, it wasn't new york city i'll, I'll put it right. that way it's a very small <laughs> little wayne county west virginia buffalo creek is where we lived and so it wasn't like super crazy pioneer days my dad worked at a nickel plant and you know we went to school and in, in, in a town and all that kind of stuff it wasn't it wasn't a little house in the prairie or anything but but uh but but you grew up with the love for the woods and nature, I, I assume. Totally. And, and honestly, that is where the world building began for me is that, yeah, I did that all. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing, but I, yeah, it was out in the woods and I was uh, peeling off bark and making like spaceships out of bark and like building a fleet and telling stories of myself about like, what's the captain of this one and what, what what's the mission. And I was always playing, always in, inventing, always, you know, the, with my brothers and sisters and then when they weren't around, it was, I was by myself just making, making, making. And basically, like, I do now professionally what I did then uh, for fun as a little kid. I, I literally, it's like the same, same juice. Uh, and and I, it's, that's one reason why I enjoy my job so much is I just like, <laughs> I like going back to that place where I'm just making, making things up and, and uh, creating. It's fun. It's play. I believe the uh, rural Appalachian translation of The Hobbit starts with, in a holler in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Yes, that is right. I'm working on that. That's going to be a very scholarly work uh, that, yeah. (laughs) So apart from Narnia, and uh, I'm curious what other stories you grew up reading and and, or did you hear any special echoes of the gospel in these stories? By the way, I love how you mentioned that you were listening to the Chronicles of Narnia being read out loud and you could just see these fantastical events and characters. And it made me think that although scripture says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, occasionally you get kind of a little interim stage in there. Sometimes you can hear the word of God uh, by means of not just the Holy Spirit's supernatural activity, but the Holy Spirit working through fictional stories to instill these sights in you. Uh, The sight of a grand lion, the sight of this uh, omnipotent being who is uh, both wild and yet also good and loving. any other stories uh, besides Narnia that God used uh, to get that truth through to your heart? Probably not from when I was really little. I, I mean, the, the stories I can remember meaning a lot to me as a young person were Lassie, Boxcar Children, um, and uh, my parents, my mom read us uh, Brother Andrew, um, which was, I don't know if you've read that book about a, a Bible smuggler uh, into the um, behind the iron curtain that was i love that that really uh informed my, my imagination a lot 
Um, scripture for sure was 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 definitely a big part of our life uh, there um, when I was really little. But I don't I don't know. I, I don't think so. I think that probably my my next big encounter, uh, and this will surprise people, but was with the, with uh, J.R.R. Tolkien uh, when I was a teenager. Uh, but it was it wasn't so much just like uh, I saw it as a as a like oh now I have learned a biblical thing or anything like that. It was more of the I, I in Tolkien I was able to see and love. Uh, the things that were in harmony with reality that that, that, that Tolkien was writing about. So I, I loved. Um, it was more about my affections than my intellect. I think um, I I I felt like it was harmonized with uh, with truth, with reality in in ways that maybe nothing else I'd ever read did. Um, but I uh, I was just I think I was just that it was like the fresh sort of breeze of reality came through in those books and it was really about like oh i i read the same things in the bible about um about a king serving or about um the beauty of sort of difference and um even like hierarchy that's like beyond kind of what we can imagine but small characters engaging in a big world that has beauty and wonder and honor and this different sort of in gods and this level of sort of magic and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, you're encountering that. And it, it, so, it was so real. And it was like, I'm seeing the same things in the Bible. And I'm just, and it just I think it just turned a switch for me of like, of just loving. And I, it, it, I guess it moved, moved my heart, I think a little bit from like duty to delight, like in the direction on the scale of duty and delight, it kind of turned that up. And, you know, Chesterton talks about, uh, you know, that the fairy tales, you know, in, in the in the fairy tales, the the rivers run with wine, so that we can see in our world they run with water, or that you know, the trees have golden or silver apples, so that in our real world we can see that they're, you know, that they're they're green and and red, and it's it's no no less amazing <laughs> that it's water that we already live in a fantasy world, and I think that um, that that everything that has helped me see that helped me see the beauty of creation that that that, that god has made this incredible fantasy world i think the best fantasy stories speculative stories whatever have helped me to have eyes to see that and maybe a heart to love what, what god has done and that includes the gospel but it's not limited to the gospel yeah when i consider the green ember which i just uh, finished reading at least a uh, book one of several books and we'll talk in a moment about how many books there are and all of that but when i finished the book it's interesting that you mentioned enjoying both brother Andrew and the boxcar children because stylistically and thematically the green ember is probably at the exact midpoint between those stories and you also mentioned the phrase uh, was it small creatures in a big world that is literally similar to, to the phrase that I had while listening to this story the audiobook version uh, read by Joel Clarkson wow these are small creatures uh, a little bit whimsical. I mean, kind of, uh, kind of like Redwall or or the uh, the talking beast from Prince Caspian specifically. And yet, there's this big story, these grand themes that suddenly surrounds uh, this boy and this girl, uh, uh, Pickett and Heather, uh, the brother sister rabbit duo, who find themselves drawn into this resistance movement, uh, and uh, it's part of uh, becoming uh, the heralds of the mended wood, and. I really loved this story and I kept thinking, you know, like if it weren't for them being described as rabbits and their foes being described as other creatures, like this could just be a traditional fantasy with human beings. And yet having them animals adds something to it. And, uh, and yet that could also trigger 
uh, a, a stigma in people's minds, like readers' minds, particularly if they're very serious and very adult. And, you know, we're only about Lord of the Rings and serious fantasy. Well, talking beasts, talking creatures, that's for children. You know, that's cartoons. It's like Disney's Robin Hood. Uh, I'm curious, uh, before we get to that, uh, moving into chapter two of our discussion here, just what images and truths led you to create the Green Ember world where these small creatures go on a big, epic adventure? I'd like to say I was a real genius, like a real marketing genius or a new, but the truth is I didn't even know what a middle grade book was. I was so out of tune from the market. The, the stories were really organic. They, the, the reason they're rabbits, a lot of people are like, do you, are you like a rabbit guy? Do you keep rabbits or whatever? <laughs> you, you train rabbits to fight and all that kind of stuff. But uh, the, the truth is I was on the porch with my daughter and she was a toddler and I like to tell her stories. And there were rabbits hopping around in the yard. And I just started telling her a story about an older sister rabbit and, and, the younger, and her younger brother. And so it started out really, really simple, really. I, so I didn't have a grand plan, um, you know, backtracking and looking back at it. I do think that it's a hospitable way to tell stories to kids to, to, to I think kids can access. It's similar to the way that we can access the really grand and high beauty of the Lord of the Rings because we're, we're not going through uh, Gandalf even, or in, even some of the, like the more noble Lords, you know, um, but we, we are going through basically children. We're going through hobbits so we can access all that stuff because of that. And I think, again, I did not intentionally, but I think that, that I can tell stories with a more of a deep, rich theme, epic theme. Um, and it's more accessible to young kids, uh, because they are rabbits. Um, and yeah, I think that, that, uh, Initially, when we first were publishing it, my, my, my brother-in-law, Andrew, and I, we were, we were thinking about releasing it. We were, I, I kind of had this pang of discovery, like, oh, my goodness, no one's going to read this. And, and I, I thought, this is way, way, way too like, uh, serious for like, little kids. Like, this is like epic, deep kind of stuff. There's like way, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's heavy in some ways. It's like a real, it's got some weight to it. And so little kids are not going to read this. And I'm like, but no older kids are going to read this because it's got rabbits. So there's like, uh, like we've written the perfect book that no one will ever read. I really had that kind of moment where I thought, and, and we've kind of surprisingly sort of the, the opposites happened. We've quite a wide range of, of people enjoy that. But I think part of that is because of what you're talking about. There's um, there's this sort of action and there's the front, there's the rabbits with swords. There's like a fun element to it. It's like, you know, it's the stuff that I like. I love Robin Hood. And uh, I loved the, the, the Fox, we called it Fox Robin Hood in, in our family. But um, yeah, so you've got all that. But then underneath it, there is this sort of new stories with an old soul. It has, the, has some of the pacing maybe of a modern story, but it's got that depth of um, a lot of old fashioned. It feels uh, not, not classical as in sort of its literary merit, but just sort of the, the, um, the heart, the moral imagination, the virtue. It's got kind of the depth to it. So I think that's why parents and kids enjoy it together so often. And it, it's a family read aloud that's, that um, that's accessible for a lot of different people, surprisingly to me. And that wasn't because I'm like genius or clever. And it's like, I had no idea, no idea. And in fact, probably if I was reading the marketing material of like what's hot and what's not, I, I don't think that I would have come up with <laughs> what I did. Cause I think it was very out of fashion. Um, but for some reason it kind of clicked with, with some readers. We'll step back for a moment from the wood that needs to be mended and explore sponsor two for this episode, a new sponsor this time, which is author Johanna Frank with her fantasy novel, The Gatekeeper's Descendants, just released last fall. Here is the back cover description. Beautiful, twisted, lively. Once upon a time, there was a curse. Hesitant to enter the kingdom, spirited and stubborn Pipera 
grudgingly accepts a task to save a fledgling earth-dwelling boy, Matthew, from sabotaging his own future. Challenged with the pull of an obsessive emotion from her past life, she's unequipped to handle the mission, let alone discern the perplexing interference from a rebel, an unearthly soul who takes great interest in both she and the boy and who relentlessly seeks to capture their affection. As Matthew's world spins throughout the cosmos, his mother's world churns at his bedside while she awaits an unknowing outcome. Who overcomes? Who ends up cursed forever? That's the book cover description for Johanna Frank's The Gatekeeper's Descendants. You can find that description plus the amazing looking cover and any links in our show notes for this episode 97 or by going to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Well, I love that, that you followed this story that that you knew was was a winner with your kid and you're like, hey, I'll bet a lot of other kids would like this story. And you just kind of kept pulling on that thread to to find a lot of other kids that were uh, were readers of this. Now, now you mentioned Brother Andrew, and I, I want to go back to that. I read the uh, Brother Andrew story to my kids uh, a number of years ago when they were both, um, I guess they were preteens when I read it to them. I read the, uh, well, it's the version of Brother Andrew that's uh, the Christian Heroes Then and Now series. So I don't, I don't think it's actually, I don't know if it's actually called Brother Andrew, but it's anyway, it's like the four kids version. But, you know, I think about that story. It's not really a kid's story. I mean, he goes to, you know, he, he's squaring off with Nazis when they invade his, his hometown. Uh, he goes to war in the, uh, the Philippines, I believe. And then, you know, and then he's a missionary behind the iron curtain, like, uh, in, in these just extremely persecuted areas of the Soviet Union. So. Uh, these are very dangerous uh, endeavors that he goes on, and yet that story was crafted in a way that my kids could could hear it and read it and make sense of it and and relate to them. And so I'm I'm kind of curious, you know, what what are the connections between your story and Andrew's story, being that there's high danger and high stakes, but yet it's something a kid can understand. Uh, I've never thought anything about that, but that is so true. And I do, uh, uh, this is particularly poignant for me now. And I just realized the name of the book is God Smuggler. Uh, yes. And, the, uh, yeah. but, but, but Brother Andrew's the, the dude. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, and I, I don't know, there were, I don't know about the intentionality or how the, the shaping or how this formed, but I, I do have a very strong view. Uh, two things. I, I don't like um, just edginess or like darkness or foulness for the sake of it. I think there's a, can sometimes be a fascination with sort of the like darkness or evil or the occult or that kind of thing. I just think that's like a really dumb thing to, to be fascinated by and dangerous and just not cool. And I don't, I don't like like, Oh, this has like a bunch. I'm not like a content hawk, like uh, looking at all the, Oh, these are all the transgressive things and don't want to necessarily like live my life, like just flagging everything in the world. But I also think it's just dumb to like indulge in the sewer. Um, and I think that too much, too much of that is happening. On the other hand, I love dangerous stories. And I think that like um, the, the, the whole sort of safe for the whole family, like this is really safe. And that's why we're doing it because it's safe. I think that is profoundly dangerous for Christian. I think so many Christians are involved with that. Like I want to, I want the stories my kids read to sort of, I just want to pat them on the head, tell them everything's going to be all right. Nothing will ever happen to you. Of course, there's no such thing as monsters. That's a lie. That's not true. Um, that is, doesn't help kids. So I like stories, my stories, my newest book, actually the newest, it's the 10th green ember book is that'll come out soon. Um, is very like there's battles. It's like 
serious. Like it's high stakes, very, really high stakes and dangerous. Now it's not gratuitous. It's not foul. It's tasteful, I think, but it's like the stakes are high. People die, you know, characters die and bad guys, you know, get chopped. And it's like, it's, and I'm not going to like spend a lot of time like being like all blood and guts and stuff. That's not really my thing, but the stakes are high and it's scary. And like, I like that. I think that's a gift to kids. So I've, I have this, my favorite stories, even for kids, like take kids very seriously. Like, and that's my, my heart. I love my kids and I want to give them a gift. I want them to experience these vicariously. I want them to experience these death scenes, these difficult times, these, these, these options where you have to stay loyal to the cause or die. And like, I I want them to, cause that is real. And I also, I believe in monsters. Like I, I, whatever, you know, when my kids ask me about, and maybe this is bad parenting. I don't know. I, I think it's good parenting. But, um, when, when parents, my kids ask me like about a monster they hear about or something like daddy is a chupacabra or something. Is that real? And I'm like, I don't know. I, I don't think so, but maybe, uh, but here's the thing. There's worse things that are real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the real enemy is worse than whatever, like the worst yeah. kind of dragon or d- thing. And the dragon's kind of real in my, in my view. And St. George is kind of like, pretty close to the mark in my opinion. So I, I just like, I, I, I don't like to, to sort of like lie to my kids. I've never, I don't like to lie to them about reality. And, and I think that the truth is there really are monsters, really are enemies. The yeah. dragon's real in a, in a sense, like that's more true. Um, like St. George and the dragon is a truer story. I think in a lot of ways, you can talk about what true means, whether facts or something that happened or if, or if it's faithful to reality. I think it's faithful to a reality in a way that some of sort of like supernatural denying, um, nothing's going to touch you. Uh, nothing's ever going to hurt, you know, kind of stories. I think it's much more, much, much more faithful than that. So it is funny that, that maybe there is some kind of thread there with, uh, with that, with that. And the common theme certainly I think is like respecting kids enough to tell them the truth about how dangerous the world is and give them stories that help equip them to have hope <laughs> and to keep faith amid the sort of the chaos and difficulty that they will yeah. absolutely and probably already have faced. Well, and you know, you mentioned St. George and the dragon, and I I think Chesterton talked about that, that we read these stories to know how dragons can be defeated. Yes. You know, and so I, I absolutely love that, that you have to prepare children that there really are monsters in this world, but you know what? They can be overcome. And here's a story about how these monsters were defeated. And so I think that's actually what gives children confidence is because you can't really fool a kid in saying there's no danger because I mean, kids are scared of a lot of things and you know, uh, and it's, it's no sense just telling them, Oh, that's not real because it doesn't change how they feel about it. First of all, but, uh, to give them the confidence through a story that they can overcome darkness and and dragons, I I think is actually a lot more effective. Mm. Amen. Amen. I appreciate that so much. And, and I appreciate that these stories have found an audience, not just among uh, Christian homeschool families, but certainly uh, many among Christian homeschool families. Like I've I've seen the Green Ember series at several events, uh, homeschool conventions that I've attended with the Realmakers Bookstore, uh, and they are wildly popular. And that overthrows a a stereotype, frankly, that I'll just go ahead and describe a stereotype that people have about Christians and or homeschoolers is that they're all about just sheltering their kids, but they don't want to equip their children for the real world. While pockets of that belief may still exist, I think that that is all but done away with now. I see Christian homeschoolers, Christian families of any education choice 
uh, much more willing to confront those dark realities of the world uh, and then train their children to engage them, not just hide away from them. Uh, if we ever have that option, it is not so now. Uh, and in fact, it actually seems to me that uh, there's there are other kinds of Christians, and God bless them, uh, but they still seem to be looking at the world as this neutral playing space, where if they just behave, if they just adopt the right kind of syncretistic beliefs uh, about relationships and identity and such, uh, well, then the world will like us, and then therefore the world will like Jesus. I think that that actually is the new naivete, and I'm not saying that we must confront and slay that enemy. You know, our, our true enemy is uh, sin and the devil, uh, but that is something that Christians do need to be confronting, and we need to learn how to confront that with the kind of chivalry and virtue uh, that we see in the Green Ember series. Although Green Ember, at least the first book that I've read, uh, it's it's not about issues. It's not an agenda book. Uh, these are timeless, timeless virtues uh, that I see portrayed. Uh, and yet also very challenging. Like one element that I really, really appreciated uh, was when uh, Pickett and Heather are going on their journey. Uh, and then you discover uh, that it is their home that has been taken apart by these evil forces, not to give too much away. But then even after they've learned that there are these, uh, there's this e evil uh, group of these enemies that are out there, uh, they also discover a dark secret uh, about their family. And that, I just, I just latched onto that, and that just kept me going. Like, what is the dark secret? What's going on? There was kind of a head fake when it, it kind of gets revealed, and you thought, oh, it may be actually worse. And then it pulls back a little bit, appropriately so. Uh, and then just everything is set up for this final confrontation between good and evil. Um, I really liked uh, Pickett's journey. Uh, it, it could have gone so wrong in any other book uh, where, okay, you know, the girls seem to be doing okay, you know, but he's the only one, you know, whining and suffering from his trauma. Uh, but then that, that just completely turns around. Um, all that to say uh, that I am now a fan uh, and I expected to enjoy the book, but I did not expect to enjoy it this much for a person who's not in that primary reading audience. Uh, I am an older adult, or at least you know, older than a young adult anyway. I don't have kids in this age group. Uh, I, I shouldn't be the one to like it so much, but I do. And so anybody who's out there, you know, maybe you don't have kids, but I would definitely recommend uh, you pick up this book and, and enjoy uh, these big themes, uh, even if it's uh, with a, a cast of small characters. Is that the kind of audience that you expected to find uh, when, when you started writing and publishing these books. You said for a while you thought that, oh, this I've written the perfect book that no one will want to read because it's, uh, it's in that little crack in between two reading groups. And yet it has taken off. Like, how, what about that reaction surprised you? Yeah, man, it's, uh, that's so kind of you to say. And thank you for taking time to read the, or listen to the books. And, and I think Joel does a really good job on the audio book. And um, so, so thanks for saying that. That, that means a lot. That's certainly an answer to prayer. I, 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 I didn't know what to expect. And it's almost hard to remember exactly. I, I think that my, my expectations for how it would connect with an audience were pretty modest. Um, because it was a story that I shared with my kids, primarily my oldest two kids, uh, Ann and Josiah, I, uh, I, I, I genuinely did have kind of a, an attitude of like, if this, because, because, you know, the stories I told them out loud for years to the kids, that, that's what these are. These were these stories that I told them on walks and bedtimes and walking around a property. I'm, I'm, I'm 50 feet away from the place where the climax of the green ember happened the first time, uh, as a, when I was spontaneously t saying, talking out loud to my, to my kids over by the step tree, we call it the step tree because the roots look like steps kind of. 
and uh, we sort of stopped at that moment, and they they were just like, "Daddy, you gotta you gotta write that down." And so uh, when I wrote the Green Ember, I I my bottom line was like, "This will be an artifact of our time together. This will be something that we shared together, a moment that we loved." And it's on your shelf, and you you know maybe you read it to your kids or grandkids, you know, but, but if, if just my kids enjoy it and it's like, Oh, that's something that old crazy old uncle Sam or, you know, crazy old grandpa Sam, uh, did, then that was fine. Like, that's a pretty cool thing. Like if you experience that and then like everything's a little bit after that's kind of bonus. I think Andrew my partner really believed that, that there was, he was more in touch with sort of the, the market and whatever. And he'd read a lot of other stuff. He's like, this, this is good. Sam, you know, we should do it. And I was like, okay. You know, so I sort of yielded to him about like when we published it. Um, but he, but so my expectations were, were really modest. I was scared. You know, we, we printed 1500 copies of it and at initially, and I was just absolutely terrified. I think I, I, I loaned the company $800, which was like a fortune to me, you know, just absolutely. I was like, I, we, you know, how could we ever get this back? You know, my partner and I were both missionary kids just, uh, come from subsistence farmers, sort of like, we don't have a grand background. <laughs> I didn't know entrepreneurs or, uh, you know, I didn't know any authors, you know, that was, uh, um, so it was just like a, it was a, it was a very modest beginning. And I don't think I can overstate that enough. And when people started responding to it, you know, we didn't have a great plan. We didn't even have, a, I didn't have any, somebody told us, go, you need to go to a homeschool conference. Like I hadn't, I didn't even know about those. Like, so it was a real, we were homeschooled and everything. It was a natural audience for us, but I'd never thought about that. I wasn't thinking about marketing very, very well, or very, uh, certainly very, um, uh, comprehensively. But, you know, when it started spreading around, man, it was just a cool experience. I, I, because, you know, I, I've told the story before about, but literally when I, the, the Amazon reviews started happening, I was just like, you know, it started seeing more and more names of people like, who is this? Like, you know, I, I, I didn't, part of me thought I'll put this out. This will be, this is my first book out. And then like, it'll be okay. Maybe, maybe it won't bring me like disgrace and it'll be all right. And then like, maybe someday I'll write something that people will resonate with. This kind of, I kind of had thought like, and it actually scared me when more and more people started. And, and at one point I was like, is my mom just like inventing Amazon accounts <laughs> to like try to encourage me or something. But it, when it started taking off, I did get a little bit scared because I kind of liked the sort of like underplay it, undersell over deliver. So when people were like, I remember reading the first time I read like, this book came with a lot of hype and I'm like, hype, what, are, what are you talking about? Like, Word of mouth yeah, hype. Hype Word is, of mouth what, hype, it would what, seem. That's what it was completely. Yeah. Cause our sales force is like a bunch of moms, a bunch of like, who are the best, you know, a bunch of uh, homeschool moms and other kind of, you know, moms and, uh, uh, they just spread it around to their friends and stuff. So, but yeah, I was, that scared me to death. I was like hyped. What do you, I don't want this to be hyped. That's not, that's not the situation. Like I want people to th- expect nothing. And then like, oh, that was kind of good. Like, that's what I wanted to happen. So then I was reading like, oh, people came with all this expectation. Like, where are they getting that from? So it just, it really did surprise me. But the the, the cool thing is, I think the, the heart of the whole story was, this was a, a gift to my kids and a gift mm-hmm. to these specific kids. And I think there's a lesson there in specificity, writing to serve somebody. Yes. I, I, I tend to think that like, um, love and service is better than fame and self-expression that, 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 that we, we tend to think of art as like this exercise in self-expression, but I think self-expression is not the beginning of art. It's bare, it's not the end of art. It's barely the beginning. And, um, I, I just think it's fine. There's nothing necessarily wrong with it, but it's not the best, uh, 
orientation to have when we're thinking about serving an audience. So this was, a, I didn't have to fake any of that. <laughs> it was like, these are my kids. I love them very much. Like, I want to give them, like, I don't want to just give them sweets. I want to give them the vegetables, but I want them to have delight. And I, you know, I want to give them reality. And I want to, so I, I was, and I just want to delight them. I want to give them a good story. I'm not trying to teach them, you know, all the virtues in the world, but my heart for them is going to come through my, my love of Jesus and his kingdom, my anticipation for his kingdom coming. I'm not trying to teach a lesson about that, but that's who I am. And so that's going to come through. And so I poured that into the books really, and with pretty modest expectations. So when it, when it started going around and you know, really we had this amazing reaction, that's like still going on just in this uh, uh, unbelievable way. I just feel like we've uh, used the metaphor of like, it feels like we are just having someone over for dinner and like, they like grandma's recipe too. We're like, oh, I thought that was kind of like our thing. So you enjoy it. That's, that's really nice. Like it, we have that in common. Like I, thank you for coming over. It, it feels like an exercise in hospitality an exercise in, in generosity. That's well, how I want my heart to be oriented towards. And it's been such a cool thing that I haven't had to like, I don't have a sophisticated persona that's like, this is my author life. And now I, and not that that's bad or anything, but, and uh, here's what I'm doing. I'm trying to like re make this market and these people like this kind of thing. It's never been like that. It's been like, Hey, here's a bunch of kids. I love them. Here's like the best story I'd come up with. Like, do you like it here? I'd like to give it to you. Uh, I love you. Um, what can I do to serve you? Like, I feel it's like a very, um, I don't, it doesn't feel grand. It feels like, uh, it feels grand in the sense of like, what a privilege to be a part of it and like loving kids. Like I have such a heart for these kids. And, uh, and it, that started with my family and starting now extends to all these kids that I get to meet in signing lines. And I've got their piles of their letters over here and see their art all the time. So I feel very connected to them. And it's, I'm thank God so much that this vocation, I haven't had to like fake, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a fraud and a fake, just like anybody else struggle with sin and pride and all the stuff. But I love that I get to wake up every day and go to a job where I, there's not a lot of pretense involved, where it's very simple. Like I try to keep it very simple. Like, hey, there's some kids. You love them. Like you love telling stories. Like share, you know, these two things meet together. And it's a very honest, very organic kind of a way. And that has been such a privilege. So it's never felt like a duty, if that, if that makes sense. It's always felt like a, an honor uh, to serve these people who are so precious to God and to me. Um, what, what a gift, like what, I mean, I always feel like, wow, what the, that's like, would I rather be a rock star or a, or an NBA player or president or whatever? No, like this is the best job in the world. Yeah. We need more of this dad energy, Sam. I really appreciate that. Chris, <laughs> Christian fantasy fandom and the publishers, the few of them that are still left need this kind of energy, uh, need this excitement driven by delight and, and not, not as a desire to use books as a teaching tool. Like usually those kinds of books end up rather dull. Uh, their edges are not very sharp. Uh, and, and yet every book uh, is itself a means of discipleship. And so you, you've been given a grand opportunity to help play a role in the discipleship of the kids and the other readers of these books. And I thank God for that. Uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, you didn't set out to make the book as just something to teach virtues. The phrase that came to mind then was the book itself is a virtue. And in fact, one of my favorite elements of uh, Green Ember, the book one, uh, is that storytelling and art actually are part of the story. So it's kind of a, a meta experience there, you know, as our heroes are discovering the paintings and the stories uh, that this rabbit world is creating, looking forward to that uh, future restoration, the mended wood. Uh, the story itself is teaching about art, even as it's teaching uh, the sight and the sensations, the emotions that accompany that longing for a restored para uh, paradise. 
Uh, that's what we need Christian-made stories to do, and I'm, I'm gl- very glad that Green Ember is doing that. Um, I'll be continuing the series, by the way, uh, just just uh, independently, you know, not just for preparation for an interview, uh, but I'm interested to see where the story goes next. And I guess uh, that could lead us to chapter three, where the story has gone next. Uh, you said that you are nearing a completion of book 10 of the Green Ember series. Yes, uh, it's all downhill from here, Stephen. Uh, that's uh, that's the good one. You read the good one, and uh, it's all downhill. Okay, there we go. Uh, <laughs> you, 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 you you sold out. You got some ghost riders. Like it's <laughs> <laughs> now, man. It's so funny because that book. It, I think it gets better. Um, I think I get better as a writer. I, that book is like maybe you've had this. You guys have had this experience because I know you're both writers, and it's just like I cannot believe that book ever happened. Um, mm-hmm. My. I had the worst health crisis of my life. Um, really, really challenged in my, in my, in my life. Uh, my, um, I'll be honest with you, my mental health wasn't great at the time. It was just a really struggle in lots of ways. My dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer during that time. I was working two jobs, exhausted, young kids, so much going on, coaching soccer, involved in my church, just very, very tired and it's really, really struggling and had some, some of the worst. I was facing the prospect of my, my father. I thought he was dying. He's actually still with us, which is amazing. Um, but uh, anyway, just like, you know, you look back and think like, man, the circumstances were not great for that, for, for something good to come out of that. And it's almost like as my, the third, the, the third book in the main series, Ember Rising is the first book I wrote after I quit my job. And I felt like that's the first one I ever wrote where I was like showing up every day. Like that was what I work. And I felt so much freedom and joy. It was such a cool experience, that book. But before that, and particularly the Green Ember, it's like how that ever came out in a way that wasn't was at all coherent is amazing to me. It did certainly come from this place of joy and love. It was also like a war for me. I don't want to minimize people who've actually been in war, but it felt like you know spiritual war, all that kind of stuff going on to get that out. And I feel like there's a lot. Of, there's something there about pain and giving birth and through for, through pain and difficulty. Like there's some something about the cost of that. I think that I think if you think you're going to do like write a story, it's going to be easy and all that. And then you're going to come out there and it's going to have a big impact or something like that. You're you're probably deluding yourself. Probably it's like very, very crazy and hard thing to do. Um, but yeah, I went on to write more books. So there's four in the main series, uh, and of uh, the Green Ember, Ember Falls, Ember Rising, and then Ember's End. And then there are there are two si- two s- sort of like smaller trilogies. Um, the one is a backstory, the Tales of Old Natalia, which is uh, taken from the pre the the the, uh, the uh, um, prologue to the to the Green Ember, the the, the story of the Black Star of Kingston. There's kind of like where the oath comes from that a lot of people resonate with. The uh, that they say to each other, "My place beside you, my blood for yours." Till the green ember rises or the end of the world. Like the characters say that to each other in the green ember, but there's a place where that came from. And I went back and wrote that story. It's like kind of like a, it would be like almost like an old Testament story to the, if the, if the Pickett and Heather stories were, were um, the new Testament kind of a thing. And uh, it's that good too. It's like the Bible. That's what I'm saying. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh, no, but, but it's uh, so I went and told that story and actually this new, the 10th book is, is the, is the third of that little trilogy. And then there's also a side story, like sort of like minor characters from the main series, some of their buddies and stuff, they go on like sort of side adventures during it. So they're kind of, uh, and uh, focused on this one particular guy named Joe Shanks, who's an archer. So those are called the green number archer series. And it's kind of a little offshoot that kind of go along and, um, there's a publication order that you can follow if you want. I cannot remember what the question is, but I did keep writing like a lunatic and, uh, and I'm still, I'm still going. Well, my next question is then, uh, can you reveal the title and do you have a release date yet for that next book? 
Ooh, I wish I did have the release date. Maybe a release frame. Yes, uh, spring of 2022, and the, the name of it is Prince Drag, <laughs> Prince Lander and the Dragon War. Um, it's the Tales of Old Natalia three. It's the Green Ember ten. It's uh, but Prince Lander and the Dragon War is what it's called, and I am very excited to share it. It should should be out in the spring. I'm thinking March or April uh, time frame. Pro- probably April for sure. Uh, but at our website, you should be able to order it as of the what is today february 10th i'm gonna go out on a limb and i'm pretty sure that's when we're gonna when we'll have pre-orders available so yeah it, it's it, that's when we'll be able to see the cover and all that okay kind of stuff. well what a happy providential coincidence uh, that this uh, episode will very likely release before february 10th so where oh, can cool. fans go to get updates about that uh, to pre-order the book uh, and to connect with you on the interwebs I'm just sdsmith.com. So I'm Sam, uh, Samuel Smith, but I use my initials when I write, um, mostly just for, to, to, uh, make it easy for people to find me. Um, plus a lot of the writers I like, uh, do that too, but there's kind of a lot of Sam Smiths out there, a lot of writers mm-hmm. who are Samuel Smith. So, um, <clears throat> just sdsmith.com is an easy place to find me. We will link to that in the show notes. And then also you have a presence on the Facebook and on the Instagram. And right now, we may also link in the show notes to the Amazon bestseller page for books labeled Christian Fantasy. I can see that as of a moment ago, the Green Ember series is right there at number three, just over Ted Decker, I think is what Zach said. So very, very bestselling, Uh, not just the Smith family enjoying those, but many thousands of families now, Christian homeschool and otherwise. SD Sam Smith, it's been great to meet you. Uh, it's been great to get involved in Story Warren uh, now, which is the, uh, the kind of the umbrella term for the Green Emberverse. And I look forward to seeing uh, where your stories take you in the future, these little creatures on a big adventure with big themes. Thank you, Stephen and Zach. It's been a, such a privilege to talk to you guys. I'm excited about what you all are doing. And uh, thanks, for, thanks for taking time and investing, investing in uh, reading the stories and, and, uh, and talking to me today. It's yeah. a real honor. Thanks for joining us. Stephen, that was really fun talking to SD Smith and getting to hear about the Green Ember series. I think this is going to be a good story for my family to check out. It sounds like a whole story world, really, not just a few books, but quite a few books. So uh, that's that's awesome, and we look forward to exploring that. Um, let's go to our comm station and um, l- look at a message we got recently. Now, this was not a... Um, uh, an email or a guild message. This was on speculative faith, uh, the subdomain of Lorehaven, the the uh, the OG Lorehaven, some might say. And uh, this was a comment on an article, Stephen, you wrote a long time ago, and I think it was one of those first articles that I found on this website. It was uh, it's the article Christians colonize the cosmos, and uh, we got a message from Blake here, and I want to read this, and I, I really uh, appreciate the, the vulnerability and the honesty of this comment from Blake. He says, quote, hello, I've been wondering how this would work for a long time and could never find any articles explaining how this would work. It's worried me a lot lately, and I wonder if us settling Mars or the moon disproves the Bible and discredits it, end quote. You know, that is such a sincere question. Um, I started thinking about this uh, in depth around uh, 2018. Uh, This was in February, right after Elon Musk sent um, his Tesla Roadster on the the Falcon Heavy rocket. And it's that iconic image of this car 
<laughs> driving through space with a little astronaut in the driver's seat and uh, the uh, the don't panic sign on the dashboard, I guess, from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And it really got me thinking, you know, there, there's something, I, I wrote a little blog about this, I can link to it or whatever, but the, the gist of it is um, there's something very different about this image of a man you know, flying around the solar system than just a robot or like a satellite or something. It, it really sends this message that human beings are going to be in space for the long haul. And that is exactly what uh, the mission of SpaceX is. It's to make uh, humanity multiplanetary. Now, there's obviously some unbiblical assumptions built within that, that we need to have a offsite backup for humanity because uh, Earth is going to get you know destroyed by the sun and that's where we have to live after that or we're going to have to go to other solar systems or or whatever and uh you know that's not the story we read in the bible um but you know what i think blake is asking here steven is well i mean he just came out and said it if we go to mars does that disprove the bible and that was kind of what i started um thinking about a few years back and it was you know uh i think it comes down to this a question about the second coming. You know, it says that every eye will see him when Jesus returns. So if there are people living on Mars, how is that going to be possible? So then you have to kind of wonder, okay, uh, is that literal? Like every single eye will see him? Or is it just, you know, just saying like everyone is going to see him? Um, And it's okay that there's people living on Mars. But I, I think there's a simpler answer to this, which is that Human beings are already in space, and we've already been to the moon. Uh, if Jesus can't come back once people go out into space, well, then he couldn't have come back in 1968 or 69, whenever, whenever man set foot on the moon. And you know, there's people in the International Space Station now. Uh, that's it's not like Jesus missed his chance to come back. I'm not really sure what that would mean if he comes back while there are people in space or on Mars or maybe other star systems. But I think this would be a really fun topic to explore in an episode, Stephen. We've kind of danced around this. We've both written some articles about it, but I think this would be a great discussion. If this is something you've thought about, listener, uh, send us your thoughts, and we'd love to even incorporate that into the episode or come into the Guild, and let's talk about it there. Um, Although right now our main topic of discussion is Power On by H.L. Burke. So come on to the guild to discuss that book. Email us at podcast at lorehaven.com. And of course, you can join that guild exclusively by subscribing free to Lorehaven. Lorehaven.com slash subscribe or find the pop-up box there. We will welcome you into the assembly and send you that super secret invite link for the exclusive community on Discord. You can, of course, also find Lorehaven by searching for Lorehaven on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Next on Fantastical Truth, well, we are fixing to bust a big myth among some Christians who are eager to engage stories in the real world. And that mythology goes something like this. Long ago, Christians and publishing companies lived together in harmony. Then everything changed when evangelicals got fearful and or legalistic, so they chose to leave the big publishers and start their own Christian publishers. Only the coming avatar of Christian creativity, master of all fantastical fiction elements, can save the world. Because, of course, this isn't just a Christian author. He's just an author who happens to be a Christian. We've heard some of these lines before, and that's what we're going to explore with our next guest uh, from the Novel Marketing Podcast, actually, Thomas Umstead Jr. Thomas will help us explain why Christian fans, as well as Christian creators, 
need to address this fantasy with a healthy dose of reality. Meanwhile, maybe you feel threatened by wolves driven from your home and forced to join the rabbit resistance. But just remember, we have art, we have honor, we have loyalty, and many other virtues, including the hope for a mended wood as we continue to seek and find Christ's fantastical truth.